In the, uh, in the field of theology, there's a category named Christology. And the term Christology is just a fancy name for the study regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Studying this field um, allows us to answer important questions like, who is Jesus? Why is he so important to us? Theologically speaking, perhaps one of the biggest uh, and most relevant questions to a skeptic today pertains to the divinity of Christ. Was he God? Or is he God? Or simply stated, is Jesus really God? People may have asked you this before. People may have brought this up to you. They say, okay, sure, he was a great teacher and maybe even a great man. They, they may even concede that he was a great prophet. But God, they say, no, no way. If we look closely at the scriptures, we can see that the authors of scripture obviously say that Jesus was divine, right? The Greek word uh, theos is a word that is often used in the New Testament to, to describe the heavenly father, but not always. For example, in John, Describing Jesus, it said, No one has ever seen God but the one only Son, who is himself God, or Theos, and is in closest relationship with the Father. In Romans chapter 9, it says, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God, Theos, again, overall. In Titus chapter 2, it says, While we wait for the Messiah, pray for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, again, Theos and Savior Jesus Christ. So we see that that same word is used for the Father and then many times for Jesus the Christ as well. There's another word um, that's used usually specifically for the Father or for Yahweh, or it's, it's translated Lord in our Bibles, and it's uh, kurios, kurios in the Greek. And we see that again used in different places regarding Jesus as well. In Luke chapter 2, it says, familiar scripture to us today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born unto you. He is Messiah, Christ the Lord. And that word Lord there is that same word that's used for the Father. So we see many examples of Jesus, the same word being used for Jesus the Christ, as the same word being used for Jesus or as for the Father. But even after we point out many of these verses, people still may not be convinced of Jesus' deity. They'll say, okay, so the authors made him out to be God. But what about Jesus himself? They may point out in the Bible that Jesus himself didn't think that he was God. In fact, they'll say he never even came out and say so, did he? So as Christians, how would we defend a charge like that? How would we answer someone like that? In fact, Jesus never even came out and said that he was God. He didn't even think he was God. Why do you think he's God? How should we answer that? What about Jesus? If he didn't even say so, how do we know that he thought of himself as God? And if he didn't think so, what does that do to our whole belief system? Think about it like this. We all know that there's many different ways to say something. The most obvious way is to just come out and say it. Right? Just come out and say it and it's... It's done. But you can also state something by actually saying something else. For example, if I said, that person over there is not a woman, you would just know by process of elimination that there's only two choices, that person is a man. So even though I didn't come out and say it, you know that that person is a man. Amen. <laughs> uh, another example could be if a woman looks into her packed clothing closet and says, I have nothing to wear. It doesn't mean that none of those clothes are hers. But what it probably means is I have nothing new to wear. 
or none of those clothes fit me, or I don't like any of those clothes anymore. So you can see how you can say something, but really saying something else. So why didn't Jesus come right out with it? Why not tell the first people he ministered to, hey, I'm God. Why didn't he do that? Because it would have been counterproductive to his mission. He came to save the world, to teach the kingdom of God, to teach forgiveness and love. He came to heal. But the people of that day, they had no concept of what the Trinity was. Any of these outrageous claims that Jesus made would have been totally rejected right off the bat, and they wouldn't have even listened to him. So he had to be very selective and very careful about how he introduced his role to the public. It wouldn't be in his best interest to publicly proclaim his divinity right from the start. Okay, but what did Jesus think of himself? Did he think he was God? Now, to assess the personality of Jesus, we really need to figure out what he thought of himself in regards to his divinity. We could look at a number of things. Not only his words, but also his actions and his relationships. So today's question is, did Jesus doubt his own divinity? My answer is, absolutely not. Now let's look at some examples of how we can be so sure. Psychologists tell us that by observing relationships is one important way to grasp a person's self-concept. For example, look at Jesus' relationship with the, with the apostles. We know that there were 12 apostles, right? 12 was a significant number. It symbolically represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus himself was never included in the 12. He formed the group, but he was separate from it or superior to it. Symbolically, he portrayed himself as a leader of the 12 tribes of Israel. So just by a relationship, we can see what Jesus thought about himself. Think about his relationship with John the Baptist. In fact, let's look at an example here. To catch your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist had been thrown into prison and he was experiencing some doubt about who Jesus was. Has that ever happened to you? You go through some traumatic thing, right? And all of a sudden your thoughts about God actually start to waver a little bit. It happens to all of us. We've all been there. Here, John the Baptist was thrown into prison, and he sent some of his followers to question Jesus, and he reassured them. Let's look in verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7. And as they departed, these were the followers of, Jesus, of, of John the Baptist, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitude concerning John, what went you out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothings are in king's houses. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. Verily I say to you, among them that are born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, 
Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's stop there. John sent some people out to ask Jesus questions. And after they left, we see in verse 7, Jesus starts asking the crowd about John. What did you go out to see, they said. What did you go out to see? Were you expecting a rich man or a king? Kind of implies that the people, the crowds that John was was uh, bringing in were almost like curiosity seekers. Just, you know, who is this guy? Is he a king? Is he a rich man? Maybe some of them thought that he was actually a prophet. And that's true, Jesus said. But his role in God's plan was even much more than that. In verse 10 it says, For for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you. He shall prepare the way before you. John is actually described as the in the ancient holy prophecies as the forerunner of Christ. Now look in verse 11. Verily I say to you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now did you catch that? Instead of ripping John up for his lapse of faith while he was in prison, Jesus described John the Baptist as the greatest man on earth. What a patient and forgiving heart Jesus has. This should speak volumes to us when we temporarily doubt our faith, or we have a setback. Instead of beating yourself up, realize that God knows the big picture of our lives, our hearts, and our motives. He didn't give up so quickly. Wouldn't it be great if we were more like that? Hmm. But there's something else here I want you to catch. Now certainly Jesus' life and his ministry far surpassed that of John's, right? Yet Jesus just got done saying that John was the greatest man on earth. How does that weigh up? Apparently Jesus thought of himself much differently than just a man. Hmm. Yes, so regarding his deity, yes, Jesus knew exactly who he was. Now let's look at something else. Let's look at his relationship with the Hebrew authorities. Historically, rabbis would always base their teachings on a precedent set by at least two or three other respected witnesses, right? The other rabbis. That was the way of the Jews. But not this rabbi. Jesus was very different. He spoke on his own authority. Oftentimes, Jesus declared to the authorities that God was going in a new direction. This was changed. This was crazy to them. Who else but God would think of himself in authority to proclaim a difference from the accepted Hebrew teachings. Now, I think we all realize how important Moses is and was and and still is to the Jews, right? Moses is the man, right? He is the one. What he says goes. Yet how many times do you see Jesus start out by saying, Moses said this, but I say something else. Moses said this, but verily, verily, I tell you something else. Powerful. You still in Matthew? Go back a few chapters. Go to chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at another example. Verse 38. Chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus speaking says, You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, 
that, res that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks of you, and from him that would borrow of you, turn not away. Let's stop there. Here's a good example, verse 38. You have heard that it has been said. You have heard. But now I'm going to tell you something else. This was the accepted law, the accepted rule, the accepted custom. It was an eye for an eye at the time. Now, critics of the Bible will oftentimes cite this verse as, as a violent indictment against God and say, look, he's promoting violence here. But really what this is, if you study it, is it's a restraint of violence. Because prior to that, the law was just no restraint whatsoever. If somebody took out your eye, you wipe him out, you wipe out his whole family, you wipe out the whole village. No restraint whatsoever. This, at least, was a limit on what was going on. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus comes and says something totally different. Not a, a law of retaliation. This modified version restricted the violence even further. In verse 39, Jesus tells them that he's going to make it better. Who else but God would have the authority to make the word of God something better? Verse 39, I say to you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you or slap you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now in Greek, the slap here or the smite is considered more of an insult than actually an act of physical violence. So take or stand up to the insult without violent retaliation. Jesus is not against us defending ourselves, but he's speaking against personal retaliation. Hey, we just saw it in the headlines just this week, didn't we? February 4th, just this week, big headlines. Vow of revenge. Jordan's king vows to retaliate for the hostage burned alive. Right? Terrible things going on. All these years later, we still see strong human emotion for retaliation. Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek as well. Again, he's not saying anything against defending ourselves, but to take the insult and turn the other cheek. Verse 40. Now he goes against the conventional thinking, and he points to the compassion of God that he wants us all to exhibit. Give them not only your coat, but also give him your shirt too. That's where we get the expression, give him the shirt off your back. Verse 41 is kind of interesting too. And whoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. This comes from the, the concept of the officials who would stand in the streets and they would oftentimes tell the people what to do, compel them or tell them what to do. Remember what happened to Simon of Cyrene when, he was, when, when Jesus was carrying his cross? The official came up to him and said, okay, you, take the cross and you now carry it apart and go. All right? And they would do that sometimes. They would go and tell people to do certain things. In this case, he's talking about a case where they would tell him, go and do something and go tell another person at a post another mile away. So go the mile and go even an extra mile. Don't even worry about it. And then he talks about generosity. Verse 42, give to them that ask of you. From him that should borrow of you, turn not away. Generosity. Show mercy unto the poor. 
Last time we met, I used the phrase, make their problems your problems. That's how we become good friends. In 43, you've heard it said, that I've been, and, and it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless them that curse you. So again, he says, you have heard it said, but now I'm telling you something else. Love your enemies. What a paradox to our mind, right? Mm -hmm. By definition, an enemy is someone that you don't love, right? It's someone that you hate. <laughs> so what a paradox. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Let's look at another relationship of Jesus. Let's look at his relationship with the Heavenly Father himself. Now, when Jesus knew that his time was running out on earth, he knew the end was near. In fact, he predicted a number of times that he was going to die. And he just got done foretelling Peter how Peter was going to betray him. Go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to look in verse 32. 1432. Jesus had just predicted that Peter was going to betray him. And now look what happens. In verse 32, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Stay here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour may pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. Stop. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus said, wait here while I go and pray. Now this was not just some casual prayer. The Greek tense here tells us that this was an earnest prayer. It was one with purpose. It was very powerful. And what an example to the disciples this was. They were naturally shaken up and they were afraid. Jesus had just told them how he was going to leave them. He was going to be killed. But he goes to prayer. Jesus goes to prayer. They see their teacher. Instead of crumbling in fear, he goes to prayer. And in verse 33, look who he even brings along with him. He takes along with him Peter, James, and John. Peter, this very same Peter who Jesus exposed, would turn his back and betray his master. Once again we see Jesus' love and his patience. He knew that Peter's story wasn't going to end there. There was more to it. And that's how he deals with us as well. When we fall short and we go back to him. He knows that the story of our lives is not going to end there. He says watch and pray, Jesus told him. Go, stay here, watch and pray. What are they watching for? Perhaps maybe the angry mob that was coming to arrest him, it doesn't tell us. But still, Jesus went to prayer. And Jesus said, if possible, take this cup from me. If possible, take this cup from me. He prayed that if it were possible, this hour may pass 
from him. He must have been dreading this hour for years. He must have been thinking about this, how difficult it's going to be. You know, how many times do we have like a nagging feeling or a dread in our lives, knowing that something difficult is going to happen down the road? It has to come to pass. Jesus knows our feelings. He's been there. The Holy Spirit can truly comfort us. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus is saying, if it were possible, end this. Well, of course it was possible if we think about it. All he had to do was stop. Stop saying the things he did. Stop teaching the kingdom of God. Stop healing and setting people free. He could just walk off into the sunset and all his troubles would have been over. But of course that's not what Jesus meant. He was thinking if there was some way to be spared the cross and still pay the ransom for our sins. Could there be another way to pay the price and keep him from the torture he was about to face? But he knew there was no other way. And then we see him addressing his father in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Take this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That expression, Abba, is used in the context of an intimate relationship between a father and his child. Now that's a very telling statement as well. Because the ancient Jews, if you remember, they would even try to avoid using the very name of God because they were afraid they would mispronounce it. So they wouldn't even say God. They would be afraid to say it. Now here is Jesus describing him as Abba, Father. An intimate relationship with God himself. Jesus spoke to him in the most personal and intimate ways. We see the humanity of Christ. And we see his victory over it by his submission to his father. Did Jesus know who he was? Yes, he did. Did he know that he was deity? Yes, he did. Let's look at one more aspect. One day the Pharisees invited Jesus to his house. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to his house for dinner. His name was Simon. And there was a sinful woman who came in the house and she worshipped Jesus. She even anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. Remember that story? Let's go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting verse 44. 44. And Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon the Pharisee, See this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves very little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And they sat at meat with him, and they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you, 
Now go in peace. Even to this day, good hospitality is a huge part of Middle Eastern culture. That's very important to them. You come into their house, they'll give you something to eat, sit down. That's a very important thing. Customary good manners, to, at this time it was customary good manners to give a visitor uh, some water to wipe his feet off the, from the, traveling the dusty roads. Jesus saw the good in this woman, and he sought to redeem her in the eyes of the Pharisee and those sitting around. Isn't that just like our Jesus? Jesus is also the customary greeting, the kiss. You did not do it, but this woman kissed my feet. And in 46, anoint your guest. Jesus showed this most holy man not only how much he had fallen short, but how much this sinner had filled in for his lack of proper behavior. It was a double rebuke. Not only are you wrong for your lack of action, but you're wrong for your rotten attitude towards this woman who is a sinner. Hmm. Jesus says later on here that great love is a sign of a forgiven heart. Again, in contrast to this Pharisee. Now let me ask you a question. Let's say I walked over here, and I'm walking over here, and I'm walking over here, and I I step on your feet, okay? And I say, I'm sorry, you know, you're okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And and you say, it's okay, it's okay, and and you forgive me, okay? So, So the question is, Is that a valid conversation? Sure. Right? It's not like I came over and I I stepped on his feet and I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then you said, I forgive you. That wouldn't make any sense, right? Okay. Okay. So now let's look at this. Verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. By definition, who is a sinful offense made against? God. God. He's the one that made the rule that you broke. So who other than God can forgive your sins? Just like when you forgave me for stepping on your feet, not stepping on for his feet, right? Who else but God can forgive sin? Yet that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. So once again, we see that Jesus knew who he was. God in the flesh. He knew who he was. And in fact, the other, the other Pharisees in verse 49, they began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sin also? They understood what he was saying. Even though, again, he didn't come right out and say it, hey, I'm God. By his actions, by his relationships, we can see what he thought. So to wrap up and in conclusion, put them all together, One time, remember Jesus most famously said in John chapter 10, he said, I and the Father are one. He did come out and say that. I and the Father are one. He knew very well his position as part of the Holy Trinity. Everything from his relationships with his disciples, to John the Baptist, to his relationships with the Jewish authorities, he not so subtly told us who he was. And also that he knew who he was. We observe his ability to perform miracles. We observe his ability to forgive sins. All of which point to the deity of Christ. But most convincingly, 
His incredible resurrection provides the most convincing statement of His oneness with the Father. Jesus stood as the Father's representative here on earth. God incarnate. God incarnate. Father's representative here on earth. His actions and His words were that of the Father Himself. Jesus is God. In fact, that's the title of the sermon today. Jesus is God. But now let's take it a step further. And How does that apply to us? We now stand here on earth as Jesus' representation of heaven. We have a role here as Jesus' representative of heaven. We're to share that message. Jesus is God. We're to share that message and we're to live worthy as children of the living God. Do our part. Do our part. He is God. We are His representative here on earth. Live worthy as a child of God. Amen?